All right, here we go. All right, Transfigurations. Great Sunday in the church here. God who said, let the light shine out of darkness. God who said, let the light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory in the face of Christ. All right, Christ our God who was transfigured on the mountain and manifested your glory to the disciples as they were able to bear it. Shed forth your everlasting light on us, your servants, that we behold your glory and enter into your sufferings and proclaim you to the world, O you who give light in darkness and you who are yourself the light of men, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. All right, um, so a little pause, a little bit of a deviation. We did this last year, and then I was thinking about should we do this again? And I thought perhaps we should for a couple of reasons. Um, one is, you know, I always think if I said something, I mean, Kirby, you'll vouch for this. How many times do I need to say something around the house before everybody does it? How many times? That's right, one time. But not everybody lives in the Holy Family like I do. So, um, you know, there once was an advertising guy around here who said, you know, you got to, Bruce, you gotta, he said, the problem with you is you got to tell everybody to do things seven times before they even begin to think about it. Now, at some point, like about time five or six, I feel like I'm insulting you. But if, in fact, it's true, you have to tell people over and over and over, okay. But the other thing I think about is that, I was thinking about church this morning, how often, how memory plays a role. So I was thinking about this morning in my prayers, I was thinking about how some of you have been particularly good to me over the years. And then I was thinking about how... um, Like all good gifts, you know, the shine kind of wears off. And that's my fault. That's not your fault. There's something sinful in our our nature that dulls our memory. And when our memories are dulled, then we're not grateful anymore. So one of the reasons you have a church here is to have this constant reminder of what Jesus is up to and what he does for you. So, of course, you've heard the stories before. I mean... You've heard the story of Elijah and Elisha before. You hear it every year, or almost every year, every couple of years. And yet, you need to hear the story again so that you remain grateful for it. In the same way, you know, Transfiguration leads to Lent on Wednesday. You guys now, after all these years, you know, you know what's coming in Ash Wednesday and with Tizay and everything. But it's important to re-say things so that you remain grateful for them. The other side is, we talked a lot about fasting and the disciplines and prayer, you know, last year and the year before. But from the questions, you could tell that among us that was such a new thing. It was very well received, and I think many of you had um, good experiences with it. But it was a little bit of catch-up. So many of you had never heard of that before, and then it was kind of the wariness of should we try that, and what happens if we try it and it doesn't work out, and how will it go for me? But universally, almost, I think the experience turned out to be positive. It's very different when you talk about something, an experience that's been positive for people, uh, than when you're trying to talk them into giving it a try. So over the past few years, for example, just take fasting, for example, I've tried to talk you into the notion that you might want to fast in some sense for Ash Wednesday. You can tell Ash Wednesday's coming because apparently it is Fat Sunday. For whatever reason, you know, what food has appeared. So, Mrs. King, thank you, and then whomever else, you know, was back there. But it's a very nice way to, you know, celebrate Transfigure. Let's build three shacks and stay here forever, right? I mean, this is as good as it can be. 
So, uh, but what I want to do is I just want to review for you, not because you haven't, maybe you don't know this, but maybe there are things, you know, maybe, the, maybe we can talk about it at a different level or maybe you can at least recall and kind of put the shine back on it so that you're ready for Wednesday. One of the things we haven't done before, probably as well as we might have, is to get a jump on it. And this year I feel like you actually can get a jump on it, even if you've just begun to realize right now that Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. I mean, even if you just realize that right now, you still have a couple of days to think about it. And because this isn't a new topic, you can probably work something out in your own life between now and Wednesday. And I'd encourage you toward that. So, you know, just as a plug then, there's dinner at 6. Vic, we have dinner this week at 6, right? We do? Somebody know? Who's running this show? Does anybody know? Gretchen Shield. Shield. Do we know? What does she say? Yes, we have dinner at 6. Okay, so Gretchen's making dinner at 6. Come for dinner, and then um, it'll be, you know, Eucharist and ashes at 7. There'll be ashes in the morning, too, but if you can come, it would be very, very nice. So, um, basically, today will be a lot of review stuff, but actually, you need to do this, I think, in order to get your next, um, well, your 40 days of Lent right, okay? Oh, I thought now I'm the notes I was supposed to start with. Here, I just got to the notes. Rachel Chester is going to Guatemala to do some mission work. Rachel Chester is studying to be a Lutheran school teacher up at Mequon. It's a thousand bucks, which is how they can get her to Guatemala and back for a thousand bucks is beyond me. But if you throw money in the basket, it'll go to Rachel. Somehow we're going to pay for that. I think Steve Chester is going too. <laughs> Frankly, if any of you, including you, Jody, have ever wanted to send Steve Chester to Guatemala, uh, Steve's actually going to go too. So uh, there's a whole bunch of benefit in this for the Chester family. Uh, in all directions. Uh, you, you figure it out yourself, Law or Gospel right, okay? Uh, pray that it doesn't snow the week that they're gone. So, life's good, all right? Yes? There's no dinner this week. Gretchen Shields a liar. She's a liar with Gretchen Shield. So there's no dinner this week. Are we sure? Because if Gretchen makes dinner for 200 people and nobody shows up, but we're not having dinner this week. When the crows leave, the world goes to hell, right? Although I always see the crow children around. I'm like, really? Your parents leave you alone? Okay, I guess. I guess it's okay. House party at the crows today. Uh, Okay, so there's no dinner this week. All right, then we're going to go with no dinner this week. I'm going to actually write myself a little note here so that I... Oh, I lost my pen. Um, i got to preach at River Forest on Tuesday right now. I'm not going to be there. I can tell you already, I'm going to forget about it. The sermon's written. I'm ready to go, but I can feel it right now. I can feel I'm not going to... What? You're a nice person, Kurt. See what, I, see what I said about the Holy Family? It's a beautiful thing. What was I writing? She's part of the extended family. No dinner Wednesday. Okay, i got to check with Gretchen. Yeah, right. I'm just trying to get this right. There you go. All right. That's what, they, that's what that table says over there, too. All right. You think we trust those people, though? We do? Really? You see what I'm talking about, the memory thing, and you got to review things? You remember Paul says, when you get old, you forget yourself, and they'll bind you up and take you where you want to get. I know. I, yeah, okay. All right, so, what's that? 
Exactly. We can. <laughs> Actually, we're going to talk about collective fast today. This is a new, so prescient. That's the new. That's the. That's one of the things we're going to talk about. Now, I guess this. Okay. So I, you know, I'm, I'm nervous about having this recorded, but um, uh, this next bit, just because you never know who. Every once in a while, somebody surprised me. Like I listened to that. I'm like, I didn't know you were listening. So, you know, there's always like pastor talk, and if you ask the altar guys, there's always pastor talk, because that's the time we're all together, and we're not always all together all week. So this week I walked into a conversation between Pastor Nelson and Pastor Bukes about somebody they knew whose congregation loved them so much. This was not, this is true. They loved them so much, this is Wisconsin talk, they loved them so much that some people in the congregation bought them a new chasuble, and Stoll's tunicle in what color? No, blaze orange, because it's deer season. <laughs> now, see, this is a real problem. This is a real problem if you're a new pastor, because if somebody, if somebody loves you so much, I mean, this is, a real, this is a serious problem if you're a new pastor. If somebody loves you so much and they say to you, I mean, they're serious. They're like, you take the liturgy seriously, and we take you seriously, and we love you, and here's your new blaze orange Chausable. Now, what's the problem with that? Yeah, we don't have. Well, you got to wear it. That's, that's the the problem is is there's a lot of there's a lot of bad choices coming up now, right? Because if you don't wear it, I mean, somebody who goes out of pocket, right? And, you know, and they bought you this, and they and they it was not an ironic gift. It was they did it because they loved their pastor, and they knew their pastor loved the liturgy. The problem is, of course, is you know there's not a blaze orange season of the church here. I mean, maybe there should be, but there's not currently. So I was, of course, curious about this, and then Pastor Nelson sat me down and explained to me how the schools let out in Wisconsin for deer season. This is true? All right. The voice, the voice of reason from Karen Crawford. Um, you know, so... I want to know who sold it to us. Well, apparently there's a market for this as you go north. So, well, as, so when somebody from Wisconsin says, really seriously, you know that there's a pitch coming for the Packers, the Brewers, or deer season. Go ahead. He did. The pastor, young pastor. I was not going to tell him because now it'll be too easy. Like, genius of a guy. This is a, he said to him very kindly, well, it doesn't match up with the church or I can't wear it during the service. But he put it on while he greeted people at the door. That's a genius. That's a guy who loves his people, right? So, um, so anyway, the point of the story is, tend the church here. Uh, the, the church here, almost always when people get in trouble in the church, almost without reservation, when people get in trouble with the church, they get in trouble because they're trying to control the church. Now, not always, obviously, but they're, rather than being bent by the church, they're trying to bend the church to, to themselves. This is the church I want, and I'm going to try to bend the church and make the church do what I want. No, 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 no. This, the church is far bigger than any of us. The church bends us because Jesus bends the church and the church bends us. Or the, Jesus' body is the church and so the church conforms us, transfigures us, changes us. So you see, this is not wrong. The impulse is so wonderful. They love this guy. He's their new guy. And he did a genius thing by kind of holding back and wearing it at a proper time. But the thing is, is there's a reason the vestments go to black. There's a reason the vestments go to purple. There's a reason there's a season of fasting. The church understands what it is to be a human being. The church understands that our memories get clouded. 
The church understands that we need to have a fast in order to have a feast. The church understands that we all regularly slip and fall and need to be, you know, helped up again. So, you know, the point of that is, is every mistake in the church, every mistake of the church is a mistake when the focus comes off Jesus and onto us. Every, without reservation, every mistake in the church is when it's anthropocentric, I'm at the center of the world, as opposed to Jesus being at the center. Or every mistake is when we try to control Jesus or we try to control the church rather than letting Jesus control us or the church control us. And like raising kids, often our mistakes are done with the very best intentions. And once, when somebody does a mistake in it with really good intentions, it's really hard to find a way out. And that guy was very, very clever at a young age to be able to do that. That was well done. The point is, the church has said to us, Hey, it's Transfiguration today, it's gold, everything is the biggest possible deal. Wednesday it'll be black, it's Ash Wednesday. And you should probably take about 40 days off. If you're clever, you remember, you'll add it up, it'll be 46. But you never, the Sundays technically are not part of Lent. Technically you don't fast on a Sunday, right? You can't fast on the day that Jesus has risen from the dead. If you count it up, it's 40 days. Although it's 46 if you just count every day, right? But the church says... You should take some time off now. You've had this brilliant season of Christmas and Epiphany where everything works out for you. Now, you should take some time to remember what this is all about. The reason this is so important is that, um, you know, your greatest competition right now, you know, are not the Baptists or the Catholics. Your greatest competition right now are basically the new atheists because they've absorbed all the best things about the church except for the cross. And you would think sometimes when you go into churches, you know, this is, I've talked about this for a long, long time. Christian churches 40 or 50 years ago started not putting crosses in. Why? Because people found the cross offensive. People stopped confessing sins. Why? Because people didn't want to say they were bad. They didn't want to say that they had sins. People stopped saying the creed. Why did they stop saying the creed? Because they don't want to talk about a God who made them and a Jesus who comes to redeem them and a Holy Spirit who needs to resurrect them because they can't do it themselves. Well, guess what? Somebody else has now stolen your game. Now, the church already knows this because this has happened over and over again in the church. What, the, what has to happen in the church is every once in a while you've got to brush up your knowledge. You've got, sh- you got to put a shine on your memory. And when you do that, you become grateful once again for the gifts that have been given. So Ash Wednesday is the beginning of this season where we polish things up. You know, in the old days, ashes were used as soap, you know. It was, well, before soap was soap, you know, before you could borrow Ashes were one of the things that were used to cleanse, right? It's, so it, it has both this property of making things really dirty, but also really clean. Okay, so you kind of think about this, and people have been doing this for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, so the suggestion is that we should do it too. Now, in years past, you remember, I think, I think my first, I've told, well, many of you weren't here when I came, but 17 years ago on this day, I ran down the hallway and said to the secretary, somebody said to me, we have an Ashes for Ash Wednesday. I thought, that's genius. Some of you know this story, but many of you don't. I said, we have an Ashes for Ash Wednesday. And I said, I don't know, what do you normally do? I ran down the hallway and I asked the secretary, do you have Ashes for Ash Wednesday? They're like, we always have Ashes for Ash Wednesday. I'm like, great, order up the ashes, here we go. So then we had the noon service, and after the service, you know, a couple of folks pulled me aside and said, ooh, 
this is very bad for you. <laughs> I'm like, what? They're like, this ashes thing. We'd never have ashes here. And what one person said to me, we've completely lost all confidence in you. This is not going to go well for you. I'm like, what the heck? So I run back down the hallway to the secretary and I say, you told me you have ashes all the time. She's like, well, I'm the school secretary. We always have ashes in the school. I got no idea what they do in the church. <laughs> so then to make wrongs right, what did I do? I took the ashes away at, at, in the evening. I'm like, oh, sorry. Didn't know you didn't have ashes for Ash Wednesday. Kind of an ashless Ash Wednesday. Okay, I mean, whatever, local custom. So then what happened, of course, we didn't have the ashes in the evening. And then I'm getting invested after the service in the evening. And what? Another group comes in and like, You've ruined our Ash Wednesday. I'm like, why? They're like, we've been waiting 30 years for ashes. We heard you had them at noon. Now you don't have them? You people are all crazy. So um, that was my first Ash Wednesday at St. John. So, I mean, here's the thing. Now we're at the point where you can sort of get, all get on the same page. I hope. All right, so um, now... So we're about to enter the 40 days of quarantine. The point is, I would like you to already begin together to think about what you're going to do. And I just want to point out a couple of things to you as we go. Um, but first, this quote from now, and number three. The most important thing you can say about God's love is that God loves us not because of anything we've done to earn that love. So you're going to hear on Ash Wednesday, I'm almost certain, you're going to hear the Joel text from the Old Testament about not showing off. And then you're going to hear Jesus be very hard on people in the gospel who say their prayers on the street corner make a big deal, which then people who don't want to wear ashes always like use as the reason you can't have ashes. Well, not so fast. Um, I just want to say to you today, the point of what you're going to do, whatever you do for Lent, you're going to do from love. Okay? And I've given you, the, you know, this text from the great theologian Karl Lagerfeld, you know, I, I mean, I've given you this before. I, I thought of it this morning. I thought I'll hand it to you. But this is, this is just, I mean, if the fashion industry can get this, why can't the church get it? I'm lucky to do it. You know, I'm just pleased with what I'm doing, and I'm lucky to do it in great conditions with people I like. That's how I feel every day when I come to St. John. I'm just pleased with what I'm doing, and I'm lucky to do it with great conditions with people I like. I don't have to battle with anybody, and everybody does exactly what I want them to. Perhaps that is my suggestion, and this is the key. I mean, if the church understood this, everything would be fine. If you do something that you love, you won't need to force yourself to do it. Love means no force. That's complete scripture, right? Love never works by force. That's the definition of the gospel. The gospel never works by force. If you do something that you love, you don't need to force yourself. If you love the church, if you love Jesus, if you love the seasons, if you love Ash Wednesday, if you love Lent, you don't have to force yourself to do it. Yes, it'll be a struggle sometimes. It'll be hard. It's difficult. It's also difficult to run a fashion house. It's not that it's not difficult. Your life is often difficult. But if you love it, it's not by force. It's because you want it. You want it to be wonderful. Love and discipline, are they any different? And the great answer from the scriptures is no. Christ is the end of the law in Romans. Christ is the telos, the fulfillment of the law. Christ is love. Christ fulfills the law. This is the point where law and gospel come together as one. Right? Perfect love fulfills the law. Perfect love casts out fear. The scriptures are full of this notion 
which then get absorbed in greater society. But here's the thing, if you love something, if you love your wife, it's not hard to live with her. If you love your kids, it's not hard to indulge them. If you love your job, it's not hard to go to work. If you love Jesus, it's not hard to go to the Eucharist. If you love the church, it's not hard to have Lent. Love doesn't work by force. It's so, so important. And when you pinch, you know, when it's hard, when it pinches, not just when it's a struggle, but when you resent it, when you're angry about it, when you're afraid of it, that's when it needs to be repented of, right? So, or when it becomes prideful on the other side, when it becomes your work and not a gift. So, but the, but the key to this, the key to this is love. So if you love Jesus, you live in a particular way. If you love your spouse, you live in a particular way. If you love your children, you live in a particular way. This is just basic stuff. And if you don't love, that shows itself too. You know, discipline and love, is there any difference? There is zero difference. There is zero difference between discipline and love. This is why it's so striking when Christians find discipline to be a bad word or obedience to be a bad word. Jesus says to you, these are the things that will make your life wonderful. For you Lutherans, I'm talking about sanctification here. These are the things that will make your life good, wonderful, a blessing. Live in this way. This is fantastic. And you say to yourself, I love the baby Jesus who was born for Mary at Christmas, and I'm going to follow in his way, and whatever he suggests that I go do, I'm going to do. So, <clears throat> for example, in Lent, it's a common time to re-up your prayers, right? Maybe your prayers have been flagging a bit. Now, if you've got to make time for prayer, and you haven't been praying, that's going to pinch a little bit. Maybe you've got to rearrange your schedule. But if you love Jesus, then you know that's what you'll do. And the reason we're stopping to take, talk about this now is we're at the point where you can get the jump on it now. In terms of content, I'm not giving you anything new that you don't know, but in terms of discipline, in terms of organization, in terms of pegging your calendar, in terms of putting your blaze orange chasuble away and getting out your black one, now's the time, okay? Right? The most important thing you can say about God's love is that God loves us not because of anything we've done to earn his love, but because God in total freedom has decided to love us. At first sight, this doesn't seem to be very inspiring. But if you reflect on it more deeply, this thought can affect and influence your life greatly. We're inclined to see our whole existence in terms of quid pro quo. I just want to, you know, everything from gay marriage to Fifty Shades of Grey is all about love as a quid pro quo. So just, just examine it from that perspective. Okay, just as a this for that. Just, just think about it in that way. As opposed to God's love, which comes in perfect freedom, only to bestow a gift. So there's love which loves in order to get something, which is ultimately not love, at least not divine love. And then there's love which loves in spite of. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Right? That's the difference between divine love and what human beings call love. It's a very simple analysis. Jesus loves, Jesus creates, Jesus baptizes, blesses, gives us the Eucharist because he wants to. He gets nothing out of it. Nothing in it for him. Right? Divine love, there's nothing in it for them except the ability to bless you. Right? That's what total freedom is. 
We assume that people will be nice to us if we're nice to them, that they will help us if we help them, and that they will love us if we love them. And so the conviction is deeply rooted in us that being loved is something we have to earn. If I don't behave, you won't love me. Which is why this whole thing we've been talking about is about being merciful to people who don't deserve any mercy. It's Luther, Heidelberg Disputation, 1518. God looks around the room and he loves the unlovable. God does not look around the room and love the lovable. He look, this, is divi- this is what's divine about it. He looks around the room and he loves the unlovable. If you're honest with your heart, that means he loves you. Not because you're lovable, but because you're unlovable. Once that sinks in, right? Once that sinks in, it does a couple of things. It spurs great love in return. Scripture, we love because he first loved us. So he loves us and we love him back. But love in the scripture is action. It's not emotion. Love in the scripture is action. So the love of God was manifest in Christ on the cross. It's action. It's not about emotion. That's a relatively new idea, right? In Scripture, love is action. It's not about what you say. It's about what you do. And the saying only matters if the saying matches the doing. In the Old Testament, always, your lips chat a lot, but your heart is far away from me. So loving and doing can't be pulled apart. If you talk about it but don't do it, that's hypocrisy. And that's when Jesus comes and says, the Lord comes and says, your sacrifices, I don't like the smell of them because you're faking. You're bringing me stuff that's not your first fruits. You're just going through the motions. You don't really care about this. It's not love. Okay. Now the bright side is, if you, take, if you pause for a moment on transfiguration and you say, look at the love. I should have put the icon. I should have brought you the icon. You remember the icon. We've read this before. Jesus emerging from this deep eternal blue in this brightness of golden light. And he rules the world, but he rules it for you. So what's the first thing Jesus does after the transfiguration? The disciples say, we should stay here. Jesus says, i got to get to work. He goes down the mountain and he heals the child, very interesting, who has been possessed by a demon. He answers a mother's prayer, father's prayer. Okay? Jesus gets to work. So it's not just making everything beautiful. It's making things beautiful for people who are unlovable, who are possessed, who are broken, or sinful. Okay? When you start to understand what it is to be loved when you're unlovable, um, you know, then, then things work. Now, I remind you at point four, something we always talk about here, which is, One of the great problems with the church is they just try to get by, right? And so many churches just get by. I mean, I drive down, I mean, I'm thinking about this a lot because there's this great movement now to eliminate, I don't know if you've been reading about it, to eliminate church buildings. So the hipster postmodern thing now is not to have a building. And people always, the, the, the argument is being made now. You know, we don't need a building because it's really about, and buildings don't matter and we can give more money other places. I secretly think in my own heart that, that I shouldn't, I should be careful about, that maybe it's that people don't actually want to tithe and pay up for a building. But maybe, you know, maybe it's got something to it. But the point is, I drive by all these church buildings, 
and they're so often dark and empty. And I, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about this, you know, I mean, what, is, what does it mean? Um, I would just suggest to you that because the church has not taught people what it is to be best, the churches are so interested in having members that they don't teach them, that they don't engage them, that they don't talk to them about what it means to be best, not just to get by, that, you know, you basically, you hit what you're aiming at. I kind of have this theory that almost nobody agrees with that I know, smart guys I talk to, that people actually, that actually do hit what they aim at. I, I kind of think most people in life hit what they aim at. And if you end up someplace and you know not why, it's probably because that's what you were aiming at. I don't know. We'll see. We'll work it out. But I, I tend to think, and I think for the church a lot, the reason churches die and go dark is because they just want to be average. Jesus is so, so against that. Read the beginning of Revelation. Anything that's lukewarm, Jesus spits it out. There isn't any middle ground in the church. There is, there is to be no church that's just supposed to be okay, average, just getting by. You know, close it up and burn it down. Move on. Because that's not the church. And here it is in Philippians where Paul says, every night I go to bed and I pray for you. You know what I pray? I pray one thing for you when I go to bed at night, when I think about you, says the Philippians. I pray for you one thing. You know what I pray? That you'll be best. Not in the Joel Olstein kind of way and being best. Not that you would be best individually. You'd be your best self. No, he says, what I pray is that you'd be the best church you could be. What does that mean? Here it is. He says to you, it means... I pray that you would be steeped in divine love. You'd be completely obedient to what Jesus has to say. And that you'd grow up in maturity. You'd get better and better. And that's what the text says. This is my prayer. That your love may abound more and more. That your love would get bigger and bigger and bigger. There's no end to the love. In knowledge, and knowledge is... Um, the, the word here is not just... So you have to understand knowing and doing fit together. So this is really the word for obedience. Because if you know it, you'll clearly do it because you love them. So he can say knowing and mean doing because there's no separation in those things. If you love, if you know, you'll just do it. If you know, you know, if you know what your wife wants for Valentine's Day, you'll just buy it, right? Whoa, okay. So a lot of you, I mean, you'll probably have a slow day, a lot of you going home. I mean, be a lot to think about, a lot to repent of from yesterday. Okay, good, yeah. I mean, here's the thing. My prayer is that you love in obedience and what's translated here is depth of insight, which is really maturity. You'll get smarter and smarter or more insightful and more insightful. There it is right there, the three things that the church should be. I pray for you that you'd love, that you'd do, and that you'd get better and better. There it is. That's how Paul describes a church. He writes the Philippians. He says, this is what a great church is. Okay, so now you've got you to think about it. You haven't heard, this isn't the first time you've heard this. So, but now, you know, now, after some years, you can start to absorb this and say, Ash Wednesday's coming. How do I reorder my own life so that I become more loving, so that I become more doing, and so that I become more mature? And we've talked about each one of those things over the year. To be more loving is to be exposed to love. To be more doing just has very much to do with putting one foot in front of the other. At some point... You just decide you're going to tithe and you tithe. You just decide you're going to say your prayers and you say them. You just decide you're going to be merciful and you're merciful. It's just the doing of it. It's not that we don't know what to do. It's not that church doesn't know what to do. It's that the church won't do it. 
right? That's the problem. It's not that we've been left behind. And the thing is, is the only way to get better, the only way to become mature is to do it. It's only in the suffering, it's only in the success, it's only in the doing that you actually become mature. This is, this is what it means to grow up as a Christian. You love, you do, you grow. Boom, 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 boom. I'm not talking about your salvation here. I'm talking about what you do with your salvation. I'm not talking about justification. Neither is Paul. He's talking about what the Philippians do in order that they grow up to become the kind of church. Churches waste so much time because they don't pay attention to the stuff that's right in front of them. Why? Because it's too hard. Right? And that's why churches die. Okay. On the other hand, this is why churches live. So partly, the point of having Lent is for you to be able to recommit to this. You should be thinking about going to church, going to the Eucharist, saying your prayers, tithing, giving alms, being merciful, right? Reading scripture, saying your prayers, being a good, giving a good witness. This is basic stuff. You know all of this stuff, right? But I mean, the point is, because you know it and have kind of had it year after year, the point is, this is your season, and it starts Wednesday. And you should hear all of this not in the way of judgment. You should hear, about, you should hear this as, as love, as opportunity, you know, so God says to you, this is what the world looks like when the world is best. This is what the world looks like when the world is wonderful. I mean, really, if it doesn't turn out this way, can it really be God's fault? It really can't be God's fault. It just can't be. Because it's so clear, okay? This is basic law and gospel stuff. Um, this whole notion that we're pressed into the image of Christ those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be transfigured, to be conformed into the gospel of Christ, okay? So a couple of things, and I, I know I'm on time, but the most important stuff I've got said. So I'm at six, but I'm going to um, finish in the next three minutes. I really, really am. Um, I just want to talk a little bit about fasting, and I gave you this sheet um, just so you could remember I think fasting is the thing that probably is newest to us and that is most um, off our radar. So point number six, a couple of things for you to think about. Just kind of the basic definitions. Absolute fasting is when you take no food and water. Um, Fasting is when you usually take no food for a period of time till nine in the morning, till noon, till you have the Eucharist maybe 12 hours, rarely for 24 hours, right? But remember the key things when we talked about fasting. It's a response to a sacred moment. It's not because you're trying to manipulate God. God's already acted. So here's the thing. God's acted in the Eucharist this morning. God acts through the church. God acts through the church here. The sacred moment is here. Jesus has been born, right? Jesus is beginning to tell us who he is. Jesus is going to the cross. That's the sacred moment. So your reaction, one of your reactions might be fasting. Now, um, you know, the other thing you can do is, and this is probably more common, is simply abstaining. So people give up beer for Lent, along with orange chasubles. They give both those things up, usually simultaneously. <laughs> All right? Um, you know, you can give up one thing for Lent, that's fine. You can give up Um, You can fast for a period of time, maybe every day until a certain time or one day a week. Um, You know, just figure out what you can do as a prompt to your memory. 
That's the whole point. The whole point is you're naturally, rhythmically, going to feel pangs of hunger. And when that happens, the point is not to think, I'm really hungry, but to think, I'm hungry because it's Lent. And then with Lent, everything I've already said kind of weighs in. Jesus loves me. Jesus is going to the cross for me. It's the, the point of it isn't that you, Jesus suffers, so you have to suffer. The point is that it's a reminder that polishes up your memory. Oh, yeah, it's the 40 days of Lent. Now, on what Peter said, I'm going to just pick that up. He's gone now, but I will pick up. I didn't talk about this last time, but I will pick it up now. I won't swear. Um, one of the things you might think about, I know that several of you have been very reluctant to talk about fasting. Some of you have talked with me. Some of you have talked with others. You might consider, this is not unknown in the scriptures, of course, the notion of a group fast. Your group could be smaller. But you might, between now and then, you might actually, you remember all of Israel declare a fast. Nineveh. I mean, Jonah goes to Nineveh. The, everybody fasts from the kings all the way down to the cows. You remember that even the cattle fasted, right? They didn't feed the cattle. Okay, so you might think about whether you want to engage in this with somebody else, a friend, a spouse. I'm not saying sort of pick up in your mural teams and see if this table can do better than this table. <laughs> all right, that's not what I'm saying. Because I gave you the sheet. We're not going to go through it today, but remember I said, you know, all the things that could go wrong. I gave you the sheet, right? So when you recognize pridefulness or cheating or lying or whatever else people do when they fast, here it is. We already thought of that. My point is that it's not just, and I'm not actually, I'm not actually lapsing into the Wheaton evangelical, let's see, what do you call them again? Accountability partners. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about somebody that you can share the joy and struggle of the fast with. You can say, how do we do today? Yeah, we did it. We went to church. That's good. When I see you come through the door, it's a miracle that any of you come to church. It's a miracle that you come across the threshold, right? It's great. So we're like, yeah, we're in church together. In the same way, you can have the same reaction about fasting. Yes, we're fasting together. Not in a prideful way. Not in a, like, our table is better than your table way. But in a way that you can, hear this in the right way, share things as a good gift. So one of the gifts of Lent is to fast because it sensitizes you to the church here, to what Jesus is doing. It burnishes your memory. And when your memory comes back, then your gratitude, your, your gratitude escalates. When your gratitude escalates, then love is fresh and new. So we put the alleluia away and we say, that thing that, thing that Chuck had the kids, that was a genius thing. The thing that the kids sang, that was unbelievable. I mean, that was, a, it was one, it was beautiful, but just the whole thing is, we love you, but we're going to just put you away for a while. And we're going to remember how special you are, but don't worry, we're going to break you out right after Easter, right right at Easter, right? It was genius stuff. All right, we got to go, but I, I got as far as I wanted to get. I only gave you the rest to remind you that this is not odd. This is the done thing. So from seven on, I just gave you the reminder that this is what the church in Acts chapter 2 did. Acts chapter 2 did. Christ's scripture prayer, the Eucharist, slash liturgy, tithing and alms, right? They had everything in common and they cared for the poor. Tithing and alms, a lavish mercy, and a great witness. People said, man, those are some interesting people. And I broke it out for you. I gave you all the verses, right? 
Um, you know, I, so, so I'm not asking you or suggesting to you anything other than what the church did when the church was new and Jesus was just sort of right there. Last thing I will say, I'm just, I'm just going to put in, I kind of went heavily on fasting. I'm just going to say something about um, tithing and alms. Alms have been fantastic. Um, we've done pretty well over the past few years. Our budget has remained fairly flat. I know this because now the budget is before me and it'll come to the governing board. Um, there's going to probably be for the first time in a couple of years a couple of percentage points bump. We don't know if you know we're going to make that. Here's the good news about a flat budget. Over the past few years, and I said this to you last night, you remember last night we did Carnival and we talked about all this sort of stuff. One of the really interesting things that's happened in our congregation over the last few years is that we've had several hundred thousand dollars walk out of the congregation in one way or another through really good givers who have moved to other places or really good givers who have retired. So nothing traumatic, right? But I know people, I often know what they give, and I often keep track of them, and I got the numbers going in my head so you don't have to have the numbers going in your head. So one of the really great things that's happened in this congregation is we've had some really, really, I mean really strong givers, you know, forty, fifty, sixty thousand $60,000 kind of givers have moved on for one reason or another. All good, all still friends, all great, life's changed. That's fantastic. And we sort of plugged that gap. That's the good news. The thing is, is that, you know, obviously we always are trying to do more and better and cost rise and things creep up and blah, blah, blah. So you just all I'm asking you to do is, in the church you don't give to a budget. Like the whole notion that you set a budget and then you give to a budget, that's nowhere in Scripture. What Scripture talks about is the people tithe and give alms and then the people who are sort of in charge, you know, pastors and governing board types, figure that out. Of course, that gets kinked anytime there's not real tithing, there's not real almsgiving, or there's poor stewardship management by the pastors and the people who are in charge. We've got to make all those things stir together. Here's the thing. We're going to live in black ink, whatever that means. But for you, it's important to think to yourself, okay, this is a good time for to re- review this and just think this over. I'm just telling you because it's the practicality. In one sense, it's really good news because we sort of continue to live within our budget even though we've had these really tremendous changes which primarily mean older people have moved out. We've gotten much younger, but younger people don't have as much money. But a lot of them are trying really hard. So take this as a positive thing and just kind of, just kind of think it through. Just review where you are, see what you can do, and then you know we have to live within what comes to us. But really think about this whole notion of doing the best that we can and not doing the bare minimum, about living in love and not in fear, and then the chips fall where they may. And that's the most important thing. You do the right thing and the chips fall where they may. You do what you do in love and things work out, right? Gotta go. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, cheers. Thanks.